Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and coming to you from Film Scene in Iowa City. We have a stellar group of guests here tonight to address our topic, which is a tough one, the seemingly intractable cycle of poverty, hunger, and disease. And I say seemingly intractable because lots of creative and dedicated people are working to find solutions for individuals, families, and communities so that tomorrow looks much brighter than today. So thank you for coming. Before we get started, let me remind you that we'd love to have you join us for the live programs if you can. Otherwise, you can catch them later on UITV, YouTube, or iTunes. Information about upcoming shows as well as link to links to archived programs can be found at international.uiowa.edu. And you can learn more at Film Scene at icfilmscene.org. Our guests in this first segment uh, will be addressing the topic of starvation in a world of plenty. And they are International Impact Award winner Roger Thoreau, journalist, author, anti-hunger advocate, and a senior fellow for agriculture and food policy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Welcome, Roger. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Great to be here. Thank you. And uh, next to him is Judy Pollenbaum, professor in the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Thank you, Judy, for being here. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And at the far end, we have Joanna Krajewski, who's a graduate student in the University of Iowa College of Public Health, and she's also pursuing a PhD in mass communications. Thank you for being here, Joanna. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, Roger, I'd like mm -hmm. to turn first to you, if we may. Um, uh, I've mentioned that you're one of two winners of this year's International Impact Award. You've had a very interesting career. Thanks. And, uh, you know, for a, a guy who grew up in a small town in Illinois, came here to the University of Iowa, tell us where you went after that. Uh, yeah, I've said it before. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, great to be here, and thanks to the, to the, the University and International Programs for the, for the award and the recognition of that. Uh, but, yeah, I've, all, I've often said that uh, I think the University of Iowa, particularly for writers, is a really good place to be because there's kind of this writerly atmosphere here with the journalism school, the Daily Iowan, the writers' workshop. But it's also a great place then for these writers to go forth mm -hmm. uh, into the world. And uh, so I guess that's what, what, what I did. I had an internship with the Wall Street Journal uh, while I was still here. And then right after graduation, I was hired uh, by the Wall Street Journal because back then the Wall Street Journal hired their interns and people out of college. and particularly their interns, if, if, if we hadn't like brought the Institute of Paper into disrepute or mm -hmm. burned down the building or something, uh, neither of which I did. Uh, and so they hired me back and they, they said they had a spot for me in the Dallas Bureau. I hadn't been to Dallas, but sounds good. Uh, and been to Texas. And then like within two and a half or three years, there was a, a opening at the, the Bureau um, in Bonn, West Germany. There were two, still two West Germanys then. This was 1982, uh, and I don't know what got into me, but I raised my hand uh, to go there. And lo and behold, it turns out there weren't that many people at the journal who had raised their hand to do that. Uh, so they, the, the managing editor called and said, Roger, we'll, we'll send you to West Germany. And, and he said, do you have a, have a passport? And I said, I, I don't. And he said, first assignment is a foreign correspondent, get a passport. <laughs> and in my foreign editor, I talked to him, and he said, uh, do you have your shots? And I said, shots for, for, for West Germany or for Europe? And he said, yeah, but we don't know where we might send you once you're overseas. Then I started getting a little woozy about that because <laughs> I was figuring, uh, what's that about? Mm -hmm. What am I getting myself uh, uh, into? And really kind of an accidental foreign correspondent because when I was here um, at the Daily Iowa, had been the sports editor for a year and, and city editor for a year and, and wrote for the paper for all four, four years um, that I was here, I guess my ambition would have been to be a, to be a sports writer for 
kind of a large paper somewhere in the Midwest, and particularly the central time zone, because I would get kind of nervous and, 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 and kind of discombobulated being in, in, in a different time zone <laughs> and figuring how do they kind of exist an hour before, an hour, <laughs> an hour after. And so to kind of then find myself in an international setting, and then that went on for 20 years as a foreign correspondent, and one place led to another, and they were all fascinating experiences. Uh, and yeah, so it was, I, I couldn't imagine um, my career taking that, that direction yeah. when I was here. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you mentioned Germany, and you were there when the Berlin Wall fell. You reported on that, or around that time? Yep, so I was in, mm -hmm. in West Germany from 1982 to 86, kind of the height of the Cold War uh, tensions. Uh, so that was fascinating to report um, on that. And then I think kind of the classes that I took in international relations and politics here probably helped uh, inform me or prepare me for that uh, to some extent. But in 1986, I had the opportunity to, to open a Wall Street Journal's office in Johannesburg, um, South Africa. It was becoming a particularly big story for the, the Wall Street Journal because at that stage in 1986, the sanctions, the disinvestment were really picking up steam, mm -hmm. certainly at, at, at all the universities. And it would have been here true or true here as well, the pressure to disinvest from any activities that you had there, the corporate boardrooms, uh, the people that read the Wall Street Journal, the, the, the major advertisers and things, they were all besieged to, to get out of South Africa, to, to the economic sanctions on them. So I opened the bureau uh, there. And then kind of in 1989, uh, I was in Namibia, uh, next door to South Africa, Southwest Africa at the time, because uh, they, were, they were getting their independence and kind of their separation from the control of, of, of the apartheid state in South Africa. They were a UN protectorate. And kind of all the other foreign correspondents in Johannesburg were there to kind of write about the beginning of the independence movement uh, there, the process. And was listening to the BBC and Voice of America and was hearing the news out of East Germany. The, the government of Eric Honecker had, had fallen. New government that had come in seemed equally repressive and, and, and unmoving by the protests that were going on. My foreign editor called me and reached me kind of at the northernmost part in Namibia where they still had telephone landline connections. And he said, uh, have you heard about what's going on there? And I said, uh, I have. Uh, how, how serious is it? And, and he said, we don't know what the outcome's going to be. But yeah, it seems that there's, there's, there's major change and tumult happening. And, and so how they wanted as many German speakers in uh, uh, back there and, and, how many, uh, and, and people who had experience um, in Germany. And so I said, it'll take us two days to get there, to get down to Windhoek, the capital of Namibia, over to Johannesburg, get winter clothes, and then go back up uh, uh, in November. And I think, if I had the timing right, we were, my wife and I, we were flying up there. My wife's a French and German translator, so they said, Anne can come as well, because we'll be sending other correspondents there who won't know their way around. And so I think as we were flying there in the night, and I think it was a Thursday, November 9th, uh, the wall fell. And so then we arrived the next day in Frankfurt, made our way to the, to the border. Mm -hmm. And so it was there for the first weekend and the first days of reunifications. The East Germans were streaming uh, across whatever breaches there were in the, in the Berlin Wall and the, the rest of the Iron Curtain uh, coming over in their little uh, Travant cars, kind of two-stroke engines, and they were sleeping in them, and they had no heat. And so the West Germans were saying, here, come to the, the gymnasiums and the bomb shelters that we prepared that we don't need anymore because it seems the Cold War is over. Uh, <laughs> and so kind of this fascinating mixture. So it was there kind of for, for the whole, the, the initial uh, part of, of uh, the end of communism in Eastern Europe and uh, uh, the reunification of, of Germany. Stayed there for about a month 
other things were going on in, in Germany as a result of that. And they came back to South, went back to South Africa and Johannesburg. And there then the rumors were heavy and a Johannesburg stock exchange and elsewhere that Mandela might be released. And the government had already released some of the, the, his, his compatriots and colleagues who had been sentenced with him in the Bavonia treason trial. And uh, uh, it's kind of a, a, a test run. And then it was on, I think, February 2nd, kind of a bolt out of the clear blue Cape Town sky at the opening of the parliament, where F.W. de Klerk stood up and said, I'm unbanning the ANC and the South African Communist Party, and I will soon be releasing Nelson Mandela. And then February 11th, I think it was February 11th, uh, Mandela walked out of prison uh, in Cape Town. So if you think back to that time, within a span of, I think, three months or 80-some, 90 days, the two things that a lot of us here would have figured will never happen in our lifetimes happened. Mm -hmm. Fall of the Berlin Wall, release of Mandela, end of communism in Eastern Europe, ostensibly mm -hmm. the end of apartheid wow. in South and, Africa. And so it's a fascinating period. Yeah, and you were there for both of these. I mean, yes. Did you have to pinch yourself that you were in these places at these times? I do, and I, I think particularly as time goes on, and as, as, as was referred to, this is the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and kind of reading the coverage of that and thinking back to that time. And, you know, I guess it was this time of uncertainty, what's happening. Uh, I think as we were talking about earlier, that then somebody was, was, was writing uh, that it, it's the end of history. What else could happen with such a big bang thing? <laughs> that as we know, certainly history goes on. Mm -hmm. uh, Everyday history is being made. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's, yeah, when you look back on that, it was an extraordinary wow. period. Well, tonight, one of the things we're focusing on is, is this whole um, terrible cycle. We've been calling it a cycle of poverty, mm -hmm. hunger, disease. And as I understand it, when you were reporting much of this time in Africa, one of the things that could sort of never leave you was uh, what you saw before you, starvation among people who were actually producing food. Exactly. Uh, and so it was kind of... In 2002, 2003, so the beginning of the, of the new millennium of the 21st century, was based in Zurich in Switzerland for the Wall Street Journal, not, not covering the banks or economics uh, stories, uh, which would have been kind of beyond my comprehension uh, to understand those machinations. We had other people in, in Europe that were doing that. But I was writing about humanitarian and development issues, and increasingly write about uh, kind of the impact of American policies on people in the rest of the world, particularly in the developing world. I was writing about the impact of the Farm Bill uh, on smallholder uh, farmers, our food aid and how that was impacting people. And then the Ethiopian famine of 2003 hit. 14 million people were on the doorstep of starvation, being fed by the international uh, community and food aid. Uh, and it was 19 years after the 1984 famine where we kind of all stood in horror and were saying never again and we are the world and do they know it's Christmas and all that whole event that came to raise awareness. 19 years later it was happening again um, and it was there covering that story and, and, and the, somebody from the World Food Program who's kind of briefing me on here's what we're going to see when we go to the, to the famine zones uh, and travel to them in Ethiopia. He said Roger, it was kind of a piece of advice, but a warning, but, but it kind of sounded ominously to a warning to me, that looking into the eyes of someone dying of hunger becomes a disease of the soul. Uh, what you see is that nobody should have to die of hunger, particularly in the 21st century. The next day was down in the, in the hunger zones in an emergency feeding tent, and there for the first time as a foreign correspondent, I felt ashamed, particularly the time that I had been in Africa, I hadn't really focused on the hunger issue. Uh, and 
I there did indeed, for the first time, look into the eyes of the hungry. Certainly, it became a disease of the soul, and my dis it, 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 was, it was kind of a moment that it was a story that stopped me. And as a foreign correspondent, we're, we're always going from country to country and place to place and story to story. That one, it was the story that I have to come back to and come back to and come back to. Hunger in the 21st century. What kind of madness were, were, were we, you know, our behavior in the world? Uh, and so that then kind of became this, this, this catalyzing moment, I guess, in my, in my life and in my career. And that became the focus of my journalism, the passion of my journalism. Uh, that then led me to write the books to eventually leave the Wall Street Journal to continue to write solely on this, this issue. So I think I was trying the patience of my editors at the Wall Street Journal at one stage. You've got to write more than, than just about the hunger issue. I said, yes, I understand it, but this is what I want to write about. You've already written about that. Well, they're still hungry. We have to keep writing about these things. And so then it was, okay, if I want to write about this and focus my efforts on that and my journalism, my storytelling, uh, it was time to leave the paper and then concentrate on writing the books. Well, we'll have a chance, those who can stay this evening will have a chance to see The Last Hunger Season, which is an interesting project you've been working on, and, it, and your book as well, same name. Uh, we'll have copies here in the, uh, in the theater if anybody would like to pick one up. But um, I think we'll turn to Judy now just for a second and talk about this, this interesting situation a, journal, a journalist uh, finds himself or herself in where you know, you, you try to present a clear-eyed report about what you see, get all the facts down as accurately as possible. But as Roger said, there are some things that just don't leave you. You are personally impacted because, after all, you're an individual and a human being with your own mind as well. You teach journalism students every day, and, uh, and you've been a journalist. So how, uh, what have you seen over your lifetime? Uh, how does this... Uh, um, uh, how is this absorbed by different people that you've worked with as, as a journalism professor? Well, let me say first that I'm here on this panel not because of anything I know or anything I've done. I'm here except for one thing, which was nominate <laughs> Roger Thoreau for this award. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, I think Roger is, um, he really exemplifies uh, the expertise of a professional journalist who is pursuing his passion through information, through research, through interviews, through very deep reporting. Um, and so while we like to say emotions shouldn't get in the way of our judgments, um, he is justifying his judgments with the breadth and depth of information gathering that he does. Um, in journalism, generally, uh, news, hard news reporting in particular, uh, there's a kind of fiction that there's no journalist there. There's no person there. The stories are just produced objectively with dispassion. Um, and of course, that's impossible. But in our training, in our socialization, we, we try to maintain this fiction. Uh, and I think the honest thing to do is to really confront the fact that you, know, you have values. You have positions on things. And that your job as a journalist is to muster the very best information you can um, to convey major issues, major problems, important stories. Um, and Roger really exemplifies that. And one more thing I want to say about his work. Um, there are different models of bringing global attention to global problems. And journalism has a big role to play. But um, one model is the kind of celebrity journalism model where 
the journalist, the investigator, becomes the white knight riding off into the sunset with the solutions. Um, another model is the people who are affected by the problems are the main subjects. And their story is most important. And whenever possible, the journalist, the reporter, should get out of the way. And I think um, Roger does that spectacularly well. Um, he's very modest, very humble about uh, his work. Um, but the results are really powerful and compelling. And I'll just do a little ad for his books. <laughs> this one is enough. It came out in 2009. Um, Co-authored with a fellow Wall Street Journal reporter, Scott Kilman. And this UI alum, Scott. And UI alum. And this one, which I just got, this one's already autographed by Roger. But this mm -hmm. one, I'm going to have him autograph right now. <laughs> the Last Hunger Season, um, about smallholder farmers. Um, and so, you know, it's it's always a thrill when Roger returns to the University of Iowa campus because he's such an inspiration for those among our journalism students who really want to do um, public service journalism. Thank you. <laughs> Thank well, you. It, that maybe leads us to Joanna Krasby, because Joanna, um, I've invited you to be on this panel as well. You're a, you're a young, um, you're a student here at the University of Iowa, just beginning your career. But you are, um, you have a master's, I believe, <coughs> in public health, and you're also getting a PhD in mass communications. So tell me how you want to use communications to amplify your work in public health. Well, um, <coughs> I would have to credit my first trip to India and the communication director at the College of Public Health for asking me to do a blog. And it was through that that then um, a professor for that India Winterim course asked me to make a video about the Siegel Foundation. And um, from there, I just realized the um, value that maybe we need more of in translating the research that's done into some sort of activism. And so I think that that connection between communicating these great projects and public health, global public health, um, is, is really important. You produced a video related to the water crisis in India, which you had, had studied. Tell us a little bit about what that was all about. Well, um, the, I was asked to do that through um, a documentary, and then it turned out to be kind of a web portal called waterpressures.org. And they were interested in the way that new media technologies can enable students so uh, to be able to blog or um, create videos so easily and so I made this video just using my iPhone and um, the most basic video editing and, and pictures that you can have on any um, Mac computer and uh, then they used that as part of their website and as part of this model that um, students who do international work or study abroad um, projects can follow and thus communicate their research. Well, I know that we'll be talking a little bit later about water resource issues, again, with a um, representative from the Siegel Foundation, Jay Siegel. But um, you have worked in Haiti. Mm -hmm. And um, you, you wrote me something that I think is just astonishing. You said that more people in the developing world have access to mobile phones than safe drinking water. Mm -hmm. And this is an astonishing thought. Yeah, and I'm hoping that I can use that as part of my dissertation work in this program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
uh, in regard to, to your um, uh, to what you've learned with smallholder uh, farmers in Africa, are water resource issues um, problematic for African farmers as well as perhaps these areas of India and, and other parts of the world? Yeah, absolutely. And, and can more people have access to mobile phones than to, say, drinking water? More access to mobile phones than toilets, mm. also particularly in India. Uh, more access to mobile phones than the essential elements of agriculture. For the smallholder farmers, mm -hmm. the access to um, uh, better quality seeds, microdosing levels of fertilizer, agricultural extension advice, financing. Um, kind of it's a negligence that, 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 that these issues that we've allowed this to, to persevere or, and to continue and that, again, when we think, gee, we're in the second decade of the, of the 21st century and we still have these kind of medieval conditions almost, mm -hmm. it's like what's, what's going on. Uh, but yeah, water uh, uh, critical uh, for agriculture. And then so the next book, the current book that I'm working on is on the thousand days from the time a woman becomes pregnant to the second birthday of the child. Nutrition really important in that span, but also the safe drinking water, the wash issues, the water sanitation, mm -hmm. hygiene, incredibly important so that the moms are able to remain healthy. Uh, the babies also have a safe and uh, clean environment where they're, where they're growing up uh, in and to keep kind of the, the, the parasites and, 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 and worms and things out of there their body because they consume the nutrients mm -hmm. that are supposed to help the body and so the, the clean clean water and water issues are, are mm -hmm. incredibly important for the health of the of the individuals but for the health of the of the entire world mm -hmm. well and just in this last minute or so that we have um, there are some some success stories aren't there mm -hmm. um, smallholder farmers who have been able to band together with the help of foundations with the work you're doing with your NGO um, to understand how markets work a little bit better mm -hmm. provide uh, ways to store their their uh, produce for a better market right. price and so on and so forth. Um, are these big strides? Do you see these as making a real difference in the countries you're working in? Yeah, they're big strides, particularly in the context of as the farmers themselves are working. I think it's one of the cruelest ironies of Africa, maybe perhaps one of the cruelest ironies of the world, is that the hungriest people in the world are smallholder farmers. It's a horrible, hideous, ugly, obscene, stupid. Uh, Oxymoron, the same as kind of hunger in American food insecurity here. Hungry Americans is a horrible oxymoron. Hungry farmers. Uh, and so, I mean, as Judy was saying, kind of, kind of in my reporting to amplify focus on the, the voices of the farmers themselves and their lives and, and have them tell the story themselves. Um, and, and through that, to hopefully, kind of my mantra uh, of my journalism would maybe be kind of outrage and inspire. Because you want to outrage people. Here's the situation that kind of grabbed by the collar by, 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 by the storytelling, but in the inspiration that there is progress being made. These are problems that can be solved, particularly the problem of global hunger. We know how to do that, particularly in this state. It's the breadbasket of the, of, of, of the U.S., breadbasket of the world. Grow ag or grow food better than anywhere, anywhere else. We can do this. And, and it's just you know, to focus on that, to make the political commitments of that, the social commitments. Uh, and to say, yeah, we need to get uh, to get going on this and, and uh, uh, actually change things and change the state of the, the world. And the better for everybody, because the, the better that these smallholder farmers, the more that they succeed in conquering their own hunger seasons and feeding their families, the more that we all succeed in this great goal of the future of how are we going to continue to feed the, feed the growing population, the population that's ever more prosperous, eating different kinds of food, more food. Uh, so, so these these steps, whether small 
large, large in the context of the, of the farmers themselves, are incredibly important. And those stories need to be told as well. Wow. Well, I hope that um, you have a chance to read The Last Hunger Season, and I, I uh, want to give a uh, deep thanks here to uh, Roger Thoreau just next to me and to Judy Pollenbaum and to Joanna Kreisky for joining us for this first segment in this program tonight. Very grateful to have you here, and we hope you'll join us for part two of this series when we'll talk with Dr. Selma Geronimo, also a winner of the 2014 International Impact Award, and with Dr. Mary Wilson about their research into endemic tropical diseases and efforts to eradicate them. All World Campus programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. And to learn more about Film Scene, visit icfilmscene.org. I'm Joan Kerr. For UI International Programs, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City. This is part two of a three-part series called The Tenacious Cycle of Poverty, Hunger, and Disease. In this segment, we'll consider how poverty and disease go hand in hand among the poorest of the poor in Brazil, the home of our 2014 International Impact Award winner, Dr. Selma Geronimo. Dr. Geronimo's colleague and collaborator at the University of Iowa has joined us as well. She's Dr. Mary Wilson, Professor of Global Health in the Departments of Internal Medicine and Microbiology at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. So thank you, Selma and Mary, for being here with us this afternoon. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And congratulations on receiving the International Impact Award. I'm sure it's very well deserved, and we're happy to have you here. It's, it's an honor, actually. I think it's a great responsibility because I I'm this five feet tall girl, and I said, my goodness, uh, so I actually have to deliver what I heard you talking about. Uh, so thank you, the University of Iowa. My institution is very thrilled, and myself. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, well, so uh, Selma is the founding director of a new institute for tropical medicine, uh, which is currently being built in Natal, Brazil, and uh, she's also a professor at the major state university of the state of Rio Grande do Norte, <laughs> and uh, the institute is part of that university. So um, I'd like to just begin by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. What was your background when you grew up? Uh, yeah, I... Um I was born in a small town, uh, I think very typical, like Iowa, 4,000 people. And uh, I left the town when I was seven years old and moved to Natal. And that's where I got all my schooling. And uh, I was very moved when I was in high school with biology. So I want to persevere in terms of biology, understand a little bit of genetics. Uh, but then medicine sort of got in the way, and uh, I ended up uh, going to medical school. And... Uh, uh, after I finished medical school, I came to U.S. and I was introduced to leishmania. I mean, it's kind of ironic that coming from Brazil where you have leishmaniasis, I end up learning leishmaniasis in, uh, in the United States in the same laboratory that Dr. Wilson had been trained. Um, and when I went back to Brazil, there was an outbreak of leishmaniasis, and that's when we sort of uh, start working on, towards understanding what was going on. And basically... I think it was sort of the turn of Brazil of becoming a very urbanized country. And, and then a lot of the people who lived in rural areas moved to the major cities. But they moved without the proper environment to live. And then, and then it's the cycle that you discussed before of poverty, but now poverty in urban areas. And you create a, a whole layer of problems, not only of disease, but of violence. And then that's when uh, drugs came in. So I think it's just 
get a complex situation. And I think uh, we see a lot with the work we'll be doing, the young children that have the disease uh, we are studying also getting being trapped in the cycle of, of the drug uh, involvement and everything else. So I think it's, this led us to actually start working not only into the health issues, but also the educational issues. I think that's probably the greatest task that we have because education is the only way that you can free people from the, the poverty uh, that they live on. It's like not only the, the environment, but also uh, in, in, the, in the mind. So tell us a little bit about these tropical diseases you work with. You've mentioned Lesh leishmaniasis. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so leishmaniasis was the first one, and we started really uh, with a small lab. Uh, we had hardly anything. Dr. Wilson, when she first went to Brazil, and Dr. Donas, I don't know whether John is here, but uh, yeah, he, we had nothing. So we, with some grants from NIH and later from grants from uh, the Brazilian Council, we were able to set up a lab that enabled us to study. But once you start one disease, then it's almost, you go to those households, to the field, and you see Leishmaniasis, but they only, they, they just don't have Leishmaniasis. They have other diseases. They have, like we sort of, we start to face leprosy. They have GI, uh, general, uh, uh, gastrointestinal diseases. They have uh, hypertension. They have preeclampsia. So you just start to unravel a lot of other diseases, and that you sort of try to get people who are specialists on this to group and actually address, because it's not that a person has one single disease, it has multiple diseases. So that's how the institute was kind of drawn up, um, was to have a, a place, uh, and it's still an idea on the construction in which we could uh, do all the uh, studies that we want, but also do the proper, proper medical care with having people with different backgrounds that are able to address uh, properly. And Brazil is getting a lot of press these days. It's not only because of the election, but also because of the economical growth that it went. But also, it's a country that has its complexity in terms of, uh, of the level of education differences. And I think that's probably our big, biggest bottleneck, is actually how we're going to move those people uh, that at this time, that do not have enough education to actually solve their own problems. So I, I think in some ways bringing in all new ideas in which we, we are able to actually make people uh, more, uh, more uh, aware, more empowered uh, to actually help solve their own problems because the state will never be enough to actually solve all the problems. So I think it's, it's a little bit on, on this. So I think that's the idea that we have is that uh, coupling the study of disease but to be able to free people from the disease, you also you ought to have education associated with that. And I understand access to medical care is also really critical for the many of the people you study and you work with. I know that you you offer free medical care to the people that you are working with in these poverty-stricken areas, and and uh, some of Mary's students and Mary herself also works there in this region. And uh, so access to doctors and sort of. Um, and understanding that, yes, there may be medicines that could help my child. I mean, this is... Uh, well, uh, if we look into, like, Brazil is like, it's incredible. In the last 30 years, has made, have, we have had so many changes. It's almost like you see a uh, log-scale thing that, that's going on. Uh, but the problem is uh, reaching the health unit. And once you have sort of a complex problems getting to the tertiary center, 
uh, which like in Brazil you can get a bypass if you need, you can get a transplant if you need. But the problem is that some of the other things that kill people as well, sometimes it get lost in, 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 the, in, the, in between. So I think the idea is actually to create a culture that we can deliver medical care in a proper way uh, and in a faster way so that we, we don't uh, have the mortality that we have for some of disease that could be avoidable. Like leishmaniasis, uh, at the start of the outbreak, we had about, there was one particular year that we had 13% of the cases died. Now it's about 5, five to 6% of the cases. And this happens because they come late. So the idea is actually if we can catch some of those diseases earlier, you decrease uh, uh, the complications, the morbidity, and you decrease mortality. These tend to be diseases that children uh, uh, most readily get? Um, the leishmaniasis used to be a disease of children. It, it, actually, the name Infanto is because, uh, but now it's, it's occurring in younger uh, adults. Uh, so a lot of the, GI, the uh, enteric diseases occur in children. And that's when you solve that, and when we decrease the enteric diseases, we actually uh, uh, increase the uh, decrease the inf infant mortality. Yeah. Uh, right. So it's it's really I incredible when you look at the data, how has uh, this has changed over the last twenty years? Mm -hmm. well, so Mary, let me bring you into the conversation. How did you and Selma begin to work together on these these kinds of uh, disease problems? Well, um, Selma mentioned that we trained in the same lab at the University of, of, of Virginia with the same uh, mentor. And uh, uh, there was one time I actually met Selma at a, a summer conference, and she came up to me and introduced herself. And, and uh, she's got this wonderful, warm personality, so of course immediately I, I took to her. But um, uh, we both had, even though we were from such different backgrounds, we have sort of a common goal of really um, liking the research, being fascinated by it, but, but also mostly just really caring about the people who have diseases that they shouldn't have, that, that Selma was mentioning because they're 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 curable and treatable, and so um, so I, I it was 1996 when Selma first invited me down to Brazil and uh, I went down there and saw her lab that had three pipettes in it, um, and, and a urine spinner it had that too, <laughs> um, and um, then went out with her to see some of the families and and um, and just was really inspired by Selma's ability to work with the populations. Um, and also really, really struck by, by the stark difference between even, you know, the, the, what was then a small, very small middle class in Brazil and, and these uh, houses where, where there, there was just very little access to anything. And I remember we, we examined, the first house was a house with two, two children who had had leishmaniasis. And, and there were 16 people living in a three-room house. And we spent, you know, we've been trained medically and we're used to spending an hour or so with it, with every patient. We probably spent 10 minutes per person just examining them. I examined them. Some had talked to them because my Portuguese is not very good. But, um, but afterwards they told us that they, that we'd spent, given them more attention than any physician they'd ever met in their lives. And it's just, it's just really sad. Well, so now you, for many years, have gone to Brazil and you've also taken students or sent students to work with Selma in her region. Uh, what is the effect on, on these uh, global health and public health uh, doctors who, who go there as you have? Um, well, um, I, th I think that for uh, a physician in training um, to go to a, 
a developing country or a situation, a, a developing situation where, where they observe poverty and observe what it's like to have poor access to medical care is really an important thing for our medical students. And I wish every student could do it. I, I did as a fourth year student and came back to the US and had culture shock when I came back. It, and so um, it's really, I've, I've facilitated the students going down. Um, I've, uh, I've uh, helped them get grants to fund their trips. But it's really Selma who's been welcoming. And, and she'll, she'll take as many as she can possibly handle. And, and she really does a good job getting them just out to see see what people are like and see the situation so they can really learn how much we have and how, how we really don't realize what we have. What is your impression of the work these, these uh, doctors do when they, when they come from a place like Iowa where they've, many of them have lived in very different circumstances and, and, and you know, want to make a difference? What are the things that they take away as being most important? Um, I think it, it actually it's both ways because it's sort of uh, I was very much influenced uh, by what I see here and also when you see physicians like Dr. Wilson, um, Dr. McGowan who's, who's there and uh, others here uh, who actually come from a very privileged society and decide to actually go through like this training and then decide to make a career of, of those diseases that it's just amazing that you leave the comfort and the protection that you have here and you are, you, 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 you are exposed and you are in a, in sometimes in vulnerable places. So actually it, it's, it sort of goes both ways, yeah. uh, showing that uh, what drives one to actually make the move to make the change, that mm -hmm. it's needed to have a better world, the world mm -hmm. that I think uh, everyone deserves. It's like. Uh, if I have all the privilege, my life is okay, why bother to actually work uh, and get into trouble and uh, face difficult situations? Mm -hmm. So I think it actually inspires the other side. Uh, and I think uh, we have profited a lot uh, from seeing uh, some of the students and physicians who came to our place uh, as much as they see uh, the abundance uh, of wealth that uh, they have in their own country in the United States compared to some of the places that Mary, that Dr. Wilson mentioned in terms of a, a, a house with three rooms where over 12 people live. Mm -hmm. um, like in Brazil is warm so you can, you spend most of the time outside but you have to go uh, at night sure. to, the, to the same place. So I think it, it goes both way and it's just like seeing how lucky coming from the US and the opportunities and then make a choice in terms of the career you want. Mm -hmm. And also the complexity, uh, because like w when we are in medical school, we usually go one problem at a time. And then when you are in the real world, then you have the complexity of several diseases at the same time. So I think it actually, your thinking gets sharper. Um, so I think it's, it's, a, it's a very good uh, way of seeing diseases and see the complexity of the environment that influences some of the disease, the disease that we are, that's it's either vector-borne or it's transmitted by uh, different uh, ways, uh, but also uh, the economical mm -hmm. side of, of, the, of the problem. When we were communicating before this program today, um, you mentioned, I believe, Mary, that one of the inspirations for beginning this Institute for Tropical Medicine was um, being faced with leprosy, a disease that I think many of us would think had been wiped out a long time ago. I think many of us think of it as some kind of ancient disease that doesn't even exist anymore. But it is, in fact, 
treatable, and yet many people in Brazil yeah. have contracted leprosy. I think leprosy is an example of, uh, it's almost, it's, there's almost a symbolism to, to, to mm -hmm. the disease. Uh, it's a, uh, you've seen in the Bible, and even myself coming from an area, like coming from Brazil, I, uh, I saw two cases of leprosy during medical school, and it's something I say, oh, this doesn't exist. And when uh, Mary and I were looking for another, another disease caused by a pathogen that sort of lives in the same cell that leishmania, I sort of started looking more carefully and found this wonderful physician, uh, Dr. Mauricio, who's, been, who's the person who actually put together all the information that we had for leprosy in my state. And then we start to, to see that there's really a problem. And uh, I think what drove us to actually try to work to a, to a better place was seeing someone like a young 30s coming into the clinic in a wheelchair because of leprosy. And when you see that, I mean, that person uh, is in a wheelchair for his life. Uh, the medication, it was just next room. And if he had had it 10 years before, it would be as normal as, uh, as we are. So it's just the unfairness of, and I think the complexity of, of, of treating disease because you have the proper medication, you have the availability of the medication, and then it's delivering and having people actually take the medication time-wise. So I think it just shows, and, and this is quite interesting for the medical students, that uh, sometimes we think that we're going to save everyone, but it's the complexity of when you treat health is, uh, is you think about the chemists that de uh, develop all the medications or the biologists and everything, but it's not only having in the shelf, but actually the act of delivering mm -hmm. and having sure that the patient will have adherence to the treatment. And leprosy, uh, and the complications of leprosy, it brings in the science, but also brings in the, the human behind the disease that is just unacceptable. So it's one of the things that, uh, so, few months ago, I, I, I went uh, to with the president of my university to the Minister of Health. We're trying to get the funding to get all this stuff done. And he said, but you guys are putting an institute to actually, uh, that you're supposed to eliminate all those diseases. Yeah, we're going to eliminate those diseases. That's going to be our task for the next, but it's going to be 20 years. Mm -hmm. And that's when I'm, I'm about to retire. So I, I, we need to get it done the next couple of years so that yeah. we, can, we can work towards eliminating. But I think it's just, it, you control initially and then you think of eliminating. And I think it's feasible if we actually, and we have the human power to actually uh, control and eliminate. And, and, and I, I either, I mean, uh, Brazil is the second country in the world that has more cases. And it doesn't go well. The seventh world economy having a disease that, so it, I think it's those things are unacceptable. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, so I think uh, the major, one of the major reasons that I think it's kind of give us energy to move on is actually that we find this unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mary, you have um, gotten any number of grants, uh, research grants, uh, with Selma to work on many of these tropical diseases. How did you get interested in tropical diseases? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, um, I was always fascinated with Africa. Mm -hmm. And when I was, uh, uh, went to medical school, I really wanted to do a, a rotation in Africa. and. Uh, I thought at that point I was going to be a medical missionary. Um, and I, I uh, uh, arranged to do a two-month rotation in Sierra Leone, of, of all places. And so I went there um, and worked with, uh, uh, at Kamakui Medical Center for two months and was, was just really appalled by, by what Selma's talking about, the fact that there 
that there are preventable diseases, treatable diseases that were really, um, that, were, that were not uh, coming to the world attention and that, that really were not being cared for. And so it's the same thing the last speaker was talking about. You, you see these things and, and you can't forget them. And so, um, so it was for that reason that I really became interested in parasitic diseases and tropical diseases and then was able to meet some inspiring people like Selma along the way that kept me going on it. Well, of course, everyone in this room, all of us know that Sierra Leone has been very much in the news, that health professionals who are trying desperately, coming from many parts of the world, trying to help people who are suffering uh, from Ebola, this horrible disease. Um, I'd just like to ask for your reactions with some of the public discussion that's gone on about, I, I don't want you to give us particular advice on whether there should be quarantines, but, um, but what do you think when you, when you hear reactions, people... Um, who are so concerned that someone with Ebola may be treated here in a U.S. hospital. Um, have, have you felt that the population just needs to be better educated about what the diseases actually are and what they can mean to an otherwise untouched population? I mean, it's a big problem, and, and I'm certainly not the person that's the most expert and, and best to, to discuss it here, but, but I think that, um, that there's been a lot of I think there's a, there's been a lot of effort to get a uniform approach, and I think that's very important. And so I think um, I think rather than panic, just having a uniform approach, there has to be a lot of compliance with what the public health officials decide is important to do for prevention. And and so I think that's that's extremely important. But I also also think it's important not to panic and just handle it logically. What what is next for you then, Selma? You go back. The institute is already up and off the grounds? Um, we have the basic laboratories are up uh, and running. Mm -hmm. um, we now get the funds to get the outpatient clinic uh, and then that's, uh, we hope to break grounds in, uh, in December or January. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I'm going to be doing like uh, an engineer check-in to see whether everything is done properly. It's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a lot of fun. I know everyone loves construction and everyone knows, uh, <laughs> but uh, we'll be doing that. But at the same time, I've been working with colleagues here at the uh, University of Iowa and colleagues back in Brazil to actually have a setup because it's not only building uh, the structure, but actually making it sustainable. And I think the sustainability is the important issue. And Brazil is going to a new, uh, very transitional phase in, in different aspects. And uh, so I think there are a lot of uh, economics changes uh, that should come soon. There is a unified health system that we have to... Uh, get the institute in, in that so that we can, we can have uh, healthy, sustainable uh, laboratories and sustaining clinics. So that's uh, the goal. But I think my number one is that I'm not going to retire before we have control of leprosy. That's, that's my, <laughs> in, in, in my state. I think that's, that's basically one of the things that I want to yeah. be very involved. Very good. Wow. Well, I can't thank you both enough for being here this afternoon. Dr. Selma Geronimo, uh, International Impact Award winner, and Mary Wilson, a doctor at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, and you nominated Dr. Geronimo, so thank you for that. And um, I hope all of you can join us for part three of this series where we're going to spend a little time on um, breaking the cycle of poverty, hunger, and disease. World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. And if you'd like to investigate Film Scene, you can go to icfilmscene.org. I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Good night. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. 
We're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City, and we're happy to have you join us for part three of this series on the tenacious cycle of poverty, hunger, and disease. We invite you to join us for the live programs if you can, or catch them later on UITV, YouTube, or iTunes. And information about upcoming shows, as well as links to archived programs, can be found at international.uiowa.edu. You can learn more about Film Scene at icfilmscene.org. The focus of this final segment of our series on poverty, hunger, and disease is rising from poverty and hopefully alleviating or at least lessening the ravages of hunger and disease. And joining me here are Jay Siegel, Executive Vice President, Siegel Foundation USA. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for being on the World Canvas program. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. And next to him is Joseph Wyckoff, Geographic Analyst at the Iowa Flood Center. Thank you, Joseph. Thanks, Joe. Mm -hmm. And at the far end, we have Christina Woodhouse, graduate student at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. Thanks, Christina. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. So, Jay, I'd like to turn to you first. And uh, you recently wrote a really wonderful commentary for the Iowa City Press Citizen about efforts to assist communities with water resource management in stressed areas, particularly of India, and right. the involvement <coughs> the Siegel Foundation has with this uh, work in India, um, what access to clean water can mean to families, to women, to children, and uh, to the future. Um, would you tell us a little bit about the Siegel Foundation? The well, Siegel Foundation has been working in the, uh, we, this is our 15th year, working in rural development. And over the years, we have realized water is, is the center uh, focus uh, in the development process. When we talk about uh, rural development, when we talk about uh, women uh, empowerment, it, it is an extremely uh, essential tool because a lot of the time the women spend for the water, water issues, uh, is, is tremendous. And we are trying to see how do we reduce the drudgery on women by making the water availability as close as possible in, uh, to them, uh, especially in the villages uh, where, we've, uh, where we capture as much water as possible at, uh, by building check dams or doing roof water harvesting or village level water harvesting. Uh, we are also working quite a bit on the uh, school water uh, management program because girl child is not sent to the school because schools because the uh, she is kept home while the elder women go out get water during the daytime. So we are trying to make facilities at the school level water, water so the girl, girls come to the school during the daytime, and, and as well as building toilets in the school for the girl child, especially for the girls. So water has been a central issue for the foundation, and quite a bit of water is used for agriculture purposes, and we want to make sure whatever water falls in the agriculture lands is preserved one way or the other because it, it is a small farm, and we talked about it earlier, is a small farm, the farms that, uh, that agriculture is done on. And they don't have a lot of capacity to have a ponds or anything, so we had to build, uh, build techniques so the water is conserved at the farm level. So overall concept is how do we preserve water at the uh, village level, at the common lands level, at the household level, at the school level, so wherever we can drop, uh, save every drop of water as possible. We water and agriculture go hand in hand, so we work quite a bit on the agriculture, uh, sustainable agriculture practices. So we, those are the two things that we support directly. And then other thing that we work quite a bit on is the local governance, because we think the sustainability comes from the governance aspect of it. Uh, we can um, build a water structure, we can provide the information on the agriculture, but the, until people take uh, control of their own well-being and own um, 
and power, uh, on, on issues in the villages, we cannot talk about sustainability. So we are trying to work on quite a bit of governance. We call our program as good rural governance. So it, it is basically working with the communities on the empowerment of the type of programs that the government has for them, as well as working on the working with the training, the institutions to deliver those services effectively to the people. So we try to bridge that gap in that particular perspective. And cross-cutting theme for, the, for our organization is how do we work with the women and empower the women to take, uh, take the lead in the villages that we think that that brings a larger impact mm -hmm. in the, in the, in the so area. So tell me why empowering women helps uh, increase the impact. Generally, I think is the we feel of our our research shows the receptivity is much. Uh, uh, when we talk about water, we talk about water. It impacts the women the most. When we talk about education, it impacts the women the most. When we talk about agriculture, when you look at in India, particularly India, most of the uh, farm um, labor is women. So and and a lot of farmers, as the men folk go out of the village for other type of earning. Uh, women are looking after the farm, uh, farms. So we feel the receptivity with the women are the most, as it is widely said, when you educate a woman, you educate a family. So we work with the women, I think, in, in that particular aspect because they, recept there's a, they understand what the benefits of the programs, or they understand the, what we are trying to do and how they can uh, take the mess uh, knowledge from us to take it to the uh, to take it to the family, take it to the villagers. That information. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, just next to you is someone who took advantage of the India winter, and then I, I would like to um, uh, help explain uh, to people who don't yet know about this program what the India winter program is by using uh, the Sigel Foundation's involvement as an example. Um, a winter break, study abroad opportunity uh, presents itself. In your case, you were interested in development, as I understand it, some development initiatives. And you worked with one of Jay's projects, one of the Siegel Foundation projects. Yeah, so we were basically a group of about 10 students. And we uh, were working in a specific village in a very rural uh, area outside of Delhi. And we were basically, uh, we were analyzing the problem of saline groundwater uh, that the farmers are trying to use for irrigation systems. And there's the problem of the salinification of the aquifer. So we were basically out there collecting measurements. And uh, some, of, some of our group were conducting focus group studies in the village, uh, trying to get an estimate of how the villagers perceive the problem of their water uh, resources. Um, and yeah, it was just a great experience uh, for everyone involved. We all became close friends as uh, students there. And, learned a lot, and it's really opened up a lot of doors for me in my professional career as well. So, so what do you do at the flood center? I'm working on the statewide floodplain mapping project. Mm -hmm. So we're basically creating uh, flood inundation maps for the whole state of Iowa. So mm -hmm. it's a vast project, and it's pretty mm -hmm. awesome. <laughs> mm -hmm. So with this, uh, with this trip to India, and I know that you've also been to other places in South Asia, um, what are some of the lessons you brought back from what you saw there and what you experienced? Um, it's just, uh, it's been truly life-changing. It's, it's beyond description to experience the, that sort of uh, poverty, I'd say, that we don't experience here in the United States. Uh, it's a whole different level of poverty and a different, you know, obviously different culture as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just really important to travel, period, just to gain a broader perspective of what's out there and a 
You know, I, I always love the Mark Twain quote, uh, travel is fatal to bigotry, prejudice, and narrow-mindedness. So I think that really sums up travel in general and just, uh, especially when you're working towards uh, a noble goal and uh, learning and experiencing new things. It's really great. In the communication we had before this program, you said that one of the things that really struck you was the uneven um, economic development around the world. How, sure. how grossly different places. Yeah, I think be. India is a place where that is very apparent. And uh, the area that uh, we were doing our studies in uh, is about an hour outside of the capital city of Delhi, and it's a whole other world. It's like stepping back in time as far as development. So um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting, though, because the technology is advancing. Like uh, I think someone mentioned earlier, the more cell phones in India than toilets and, uh, and whatnot. And yeah, it's, it's amazing. Everyone's got their mobile phone, but um, there's still you know, the problem of open defecation and things like this. So there's definitely this, uh, the, the uneven nature of development is very apparent in India, yeah. And Jay, with your foundation, um, why do you invite these students in to work on your project? Well, I think the students bring a, a very, very good perspective to the organization in, the, in, this, in, the, in a sense that uh, they have, um, a, of course, a fresh mind mm -hmm. to apply to it. You know, we do, uh, we do worry quite a bit of uh, our uh, impact that, that, that our programs are bringing. And here we have an opportunity when the students come in, they do an independent study. They are not part of the organization. They're coming and looking at a fresh look at the, uh, at the organization and the, how do we go about doing it. So they have a lot of suggestions and a lot of uh, uh, input to our programs. And we really, uh, we really appreciate it. As a matter of fact, two, uh, we are now three years in a row, uh, three or fourth, fourth year we are in, in the, uh, uh, studying the saline zones. Now, one of the things that uh, drastically happening in a country like India is a lot of salinity is building on what they call inland salinity because the monsoons are very harsh. A lot of water gets stagnant on the on the uh, on the soils, and then and it, and do the evaporation. A lot of salinity is building up in the soils. So the, this program that Joseph was mentioning is on the uh, on the sal studying saline zone or mapping the saline zones of the region where we are working. So we have a good assessment of where we need to uh, do more programs so we can eliminate or at least uh, reduce the salinity. Uh, basically due to extracting, pushing the water more to the ground instead of having it stagnating on the, onto the, ground, on the, on the surface level. So these, these perspectives, we would not have come out ourselves with, with these perspectives. The University of Iowa has a tremendous technology on G, uh, uh, G, GPS systems, I believe, where you map, do all the mapping. GIS, GIS I'm sorry, thank you. GIS systems, and we use that to, our, uh, to map these saline zones. So it, it's a... Is a tremendous uh, look at our programs, external look at our programs. Yeah. So. Yeah. Wow. Well, let me bring you into the conversation now, Christina Woodhouse. Um, you are involved in, in public health, and um, you are working with adolescent girls in Honduras to increase their uh, length of time in school, help them understand the value of education, and, and, and help us understand what you're doing with knowledge is power. Yeah. So. Um, I am a medical and public health student, MD, MPH, and the project that I'm working on right now is part of the um, College of Medicine Global Health Distinction Track. Um, this is an opportunity that the college offers to students who are particularly interested in global health 
um, which includes myself. Um, and so the project I'm going to be doing, um, or that I'm working on right now, is going to be providing health education um, for adolescent girls in a community in Honduras that I've worked in before. Um, and I just, I had volunteered in this community um, after graduating from undergrad, um, and I just, you know, kind of like what, you know, other people have been saying this evening, you know, once you are there and you have these experiences, it's very hard sometimes to, like, forget that, even when you come back. And, you know, I was very busy with starting medical school. Um, and I just, I wanted to stay connected to this community. Um, and I found that health, which is kind of my area of interest, um, was something that I wanted to, you know, try to make an impact on in this community. Um, so that's kind of how I ended up creating this um, education program. Um, and I chose to work with young women since um, women are often kind of not exactly in charge, but they're also often the ones that are um, sort of responsible for the health care of the family, um, taking the kids to the doctor, or you know, if someone in the family is sick, they're the ones that need to stay home and, and take care of that person. Um, so I felt that you know, working with, with young women would kind of help with that, um, you know, the empowering of these young women, and hopefully um, when they're older and have families of their own, you know, they can use the knowledge and the skills that they've gained to help improve the health of their family and their community as well. What are some of the particular health issues that um, these young women might be dealing with? Yeah, so um, in Honduras, there are, there are a variety of health issues. Um, when I was volunteering there previously, I worked with children. Um, and I worked with education, so not health-related at all, actually. Um, but I found that a lot of the children I were working with um, were suffering from, you know, a variety of different problems that that seemed, you know, some of them seemed like they could, you know, be preventable or that they could be treated. Um, you know, kids with wounds because they didn't have shoes and they were running around barefoot. Um, families that I knew who had had children who had died of diseases like diarrhea or um, upper respiratory illnesses, and it just, you know, it really seemed um, kind of crazy that, you know, these problems were so prevalent in this community um, that I felt, you know, that if they lived here in the United States, it would be, you know, one trip to the primary care doctor and they would be fine. And, and um, so, yeah, those, the problem with children was initially, um, the problems that children are dealing with um, whereas initially what I was interested in but I also think issues with um, access to um, information about reproductive health is very important, um, access to information, and to resources for um, eating healthy uh, nutrition. Um, clean water is an issue in Honduras as well as many other countries around the world. Um, there's, there's just a lot of different issues that I think um, t teaching about and allowing women to kind of think about solutions that might be available in their community or what they can do um, to try to be better the health of their families and their community um, is really kind of the goal of, of the Knowledge is Power program. So do you have an intersection with either the, the uh, schools or with government health care offices? Um, or how, how do you reach yeah, the people Yeah, so my project um, is, it's, so it's trying to engage the community um, as well as just, you know, me and the University of Iowa, other students. Um, but kind of the basis behind this is 
um, the formation of a community advisory board. Um, when I was in Honduras previously, I discussed the different health problems with members of um, the government and the education system and the health health system that's already there. And they they were they felt very strongly that education was something that was was needed. Um, and so I'm the idea is that I'm combining you know people from these different areas to kind of work together and serve as the advisory board to help um, sort of oversee the project. Um, you know, give input, be a local resource, um, you know, make sure that the content of the curriculum is appropriate culturally and socially. Um, and then hopefully this project is something that um, can be sort of more community oriented as it, you know, gets, gets going. And in future years, the idea is that one of the participants and one of the students can later be, you know, one of the teachers. Um, and so that it can have sort of a community basis because I think that's very important. And is this quite a small community you're working with? Um, yeah, it's about, it's not, uh, I think it's maybe six or 7,000 people. Um, so it's, it's relatively small, um, this community on the northern coast of Honduras. Um, and they, they have a health center there, um, but, you know, there's a lot of problems with people accessing it and the cost of medi medications and, and all sorts of things. So I think um, this is kind of another avenue that people can can use to get more information and, and learn about how they can um, try to improve their health. Uh, Joseph, one of the things you mentioned was that you're, you've gotten involved recently in the whole uh, notion of micro-lending. Yeah, sure. uh, tell us something about uh, what you're doing there. Yeah, so I've recently uh, become a member of Kiva.org, and it's basically a micro-lending institution that um, you sign up for and you can lend out in increments of $25 to individuals and groups in developing nations. Uh, a lot of these loans revolve around water, resources, agriculture, um, farming, yeah, and about opening small businesses, things like that. And uh, it's pretty amazing. It has a 99% repayment rate. and. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's pretty amazing. They work with uh, NGOs and local partners on the ground to kind of verify and administer the loans. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah. That's fantastic. And, and I suspect there's an awful lot of micro-lending still happening in India. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's, uh, it is a field which is uh, growing, continues to grow in India. And most, uh, most effective is the southern part of India. I think the, uh, in the I think uh, one of the, Personally, I feel it's because the wages in the north are are a little higher, so I think the uh, the the lending is not so great. But in the south, where the wages are really uh, and the earnings are very low, with the with especially with the women folk, uh, there there the it's the uh, this microfinance has uh, picked up tremendously. So with the Siegel Foundation, you said you've now been active for 15 years. Yes. And there's a very interesting history to the, the startup of your organization. I think people here would be interested to hear about your, yeah. your founder. Yeah, our founder is uh, Dr. Suri Siegel, and um, he's, uh, he's a graduate of Harvard, not the University of Iowa, in genetics. And uh, after graduating, he came to uh, work for Pioneer, for many Pioneer Seed Company here in Des Moines, Iowa. And uh, for working there for many years, he left Pioneer and set up his own businesses uh, throughout the world. 
uh, after he sold the, those businesses, basically, he wanted to do something back for the country of his origin. And he, he always says, my earlier education came from that country, and I must do something. And uh, of course, the, uh, working with the farmers throughout his life, he has realized uh, what the farming community goes through in, that, in, those, in those countries with the uh, small farms and uh, their the lower uh, earning power. So he wanted to really do something back for the country, and, and especially working in the areas of education, agriculture. Uh, and, and so he set up this trust in Des Moines, uh, based in Des Moines, Iowa, and uh, to give back to the, uh, back to the country. And, and basically, that's, that's how the, this whole, or the family got behind it. Family said, we need to support it. Uh, most of the resources that came from uh, the sale of these businesses was put aside in the trust. And um, basically, he has been after uh, the key things that uh, is empowerment of the people, empowerment of the people to take care of their own well-being. And that has been his, uh, his uh, flagship uh, program over the years. Yeah. So is the goal of the organization to put itself out of business? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That would be, be the ultimate goal, yes. Uh, it's a long ways to go, you know, and uh, we would... We would love to see that people are empowered, people start taking, you know, they need a beginning. People need a beginning. And I think the uh, uh, government programs are there to get take that beginning. Unfortunately, the awareness is not there at the grassroots level. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, our good rural governance program works very closely with these people to make sure these programs reach the uh, people who need to be reached effectively. And, and I think that, that creates a sustainability. A lot of discussion goes on as to how do you phase out of villages? How do you move away? And our, our uh, goal is that once they start taking care of their own well-being, instead of being dependent on a government program, being dependent on an NGO like ours, uh, so then, then it's the right time that we can move to other, other places. Uh, today, I think we work in about uh, 400 villages in, uh, uh, in uh, northern part of India. And... Uh, and so we, we work about half a million people as well. But that's still, in a country like India, that's a drop in a bucket. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you have 640,000 villages and the population now is 840 million people who lives in the rural areas. So there's a long ways to go. There's a long, long, there's a long time goal. And, but I think the, that's the ultimate goal to, so that they start taking up these things on their own. Well, thank you all for being here. Jay Siegel, lovely to have you. Thank Joseph you. Wyckoff, thank, thank you, you very much. And Christina Woodhouse, thank, thank you. you for joining us. Uh, so we, this has been the third part of a three-part series on poverty, hunger, and disease, and some of the ways out of uh, the predicaments many people find themselves in these days. Um, that's the end of our program for this afternoon. And I want to say thank you very much to Film Scene and to all of you who joined us this afternoon. If you'd like to see this program again, you can catch it on UITV, YouTube, or iTunes. Information about upcoming programs as well as links to archived programs can be found at International uiowa.edu and find out more about Film Scene at icfilmscene.org. I'm Joan Kerr and I'd like to invite you to our next World Canvas which will be here in this room where we'll explore gender and identity and in a global context. That's December 9th at 5 o'clock here at Film Scene. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Good night.